Well, good morning. Have I told you yet that I love stories? And if you did not know that, now you do. And it's part of why we have spent a lot of the last year walking through and talking through stories. But today's story is particularly fun. And I um, am excited about some of the historical implications that this story carries. And I... I'm looking forward to processing that and talking through that. But basically, the last two weeks and this week are sort of three stories with the same theme. Three stories with the same idea. Searching for something that is lost and rejoicing over what is found in the kingdom. And there's one other theme in this story that has been evident, but not as heavily talked about until we got to today. And that is that the Pharisees asked Jesus... Basically, why are you treating sinners like family? So the third sort of idea and evidence sort of um, in this story is that Jesus is also answering the question all along. Not how do you find something and how do you rejoice and how do you search effectively. Those are all a part of these stories. But also answering the question, who is family? Because they had questioned Jesus on why he had made friends with sinners, why he had welcomed them into his home, a sign of family. And this parable dives into that question a little bit more. Who is family? And what we've tried to do every single week that we've been in this series is put ourselves in the shoes of the story. Because stories are effective when we can identify where we're supposed to be. And on some level, what I've also asked you to do is put yourself in the story, even if that means that where you fit in the story isn't as comfortable for you as you would like it to be. And so that is a challenge, but it can happen. And just like the last couple of weeks, we're just going to walk through the text. We're going to walk through the historical implications. We're going to make some observations, and then we're going to ask some questions. And that's going to be sort of the same as what we've done every single week of this series so far. So let's jump in. Luke 15, verse 11, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued. Okay, let's stop here just briefly. I know it'll take some time to get through 20 verses if we take them two words at a time. Um, you have all day, right? We're good? Okay, cool. So Jesus is addressing the Pharisees because they didn't want him hanging out with sinners. And he's told two stories so far in this moment of sitting down and addressing the Pharisees. And the first story he tells and talks about searching for and finding and rejoicing. And the second story he sits there and he talks about searching and finding and rejoicing. And the Pharisees are still there. And I imagine a little bit, because we're going to put ourselves in the story. So we'll use our imagination a little bit. And there's a sense where Jesus is like, okay, story one, story two, and the Pharisees are still like, eh. So Jesus is like, all right, one more time. Let's do this, but in a slightly different way that may hit again. And so Jesus continued telling stories about searching for, finding, and rejoicing over who is family. And it goes on to say there was a man who had two sons. The younger one, okay, we're going to stop here. So the thing about the younger son that's really, really important is that the Pharisees would immediately identify with a younger son. Did you know that? So the thing about the Pharisees is that they knew their Bible. And the thing about younger sons in the Bible is they're definitely better than older sons in multiple stories. So if you look at Cain and Abel, the older son killed the younger brother. If you look at... Um, 
Jacob and Esau. The older son is the village villain. If you look at um, Isaac and Ishmael, the older son is the villain. So there's all these stories in the Old Testament that the Pharisees would know where when someone says the younger son, they go, oh yeah, that's me. Right? Because they've identified that in the context of a story, the older son is going to be a terrible thing and the younger son will be great. Follower of God who does things perfectly. And so even the who does what in the story that Jesus is telling is intentional. Very important. But we miss that if we don't pay attention to historical implications. So today is a lot of history. And um, if you don't like history, I'm sorry. So the verse goes on. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. All right, stopping there. Right off the bat, Jesus has caught the Pharisees off guard with the younger brother thing. And now, here's some more historical context. Remember last week how Jesus used a coin? And it was this valuable symbol of marriage. It was a life savings piece. It was an incredibly important, historically necessary thing to help the Pharisees see how valuable it was to search and find the lost thing. And that sort of use of that coin helped them see, like, and understand the perspective from what they knew and understand. But a lot of times, if we read that story, we don't think about the value of a coin, and so we miss some of the intensity that is being portrayed. And Jesus knew, just like he did with that story, exactly what he was doing with this story. And this phrase matters. And in order to fully understand what Jesus is communicating in this story, we have to understand what the implications of requesting an early inheritance were in Scripture. Now, at the time that Jesus was telling this story, there was something being developed called the Jewish Mishnah. And that particular document was basically a response to political unrest in the area. And it was sort of this theological, cultural, laws-based, in-writing um, book of what you should or shouldn't do. It was like a theological constitution of the time. It came after political unrest, and it had all of the things culturally, biblically, theologically, and it followed the Old Testament. So now we have to assume that if we know what it is, and it's a law book based on the Old Testament, that the Pharisees knew every law in that book. Because they knew all of them. They were the most well-versed in laws. They were the most well-versed in what you should and should not be doing. And that's where all these arguments with the Pharisees uh, end up starting and becoming about. And so we know the Pharisees probably knew what that was. And there's a law in that book. And the law says if one assign in writing his estate to his son to become his after his death, the father cannot sell it since it is conveyed to his son. And the son cannot sell it because it is under the father's control. So there was no legal right to release an early inheritance or sell an inheritance at any point while the father is still alive. 
So Jesus brings up the inheritance for a reason. It ties to a law that the Pharisees are using, they're well aware of, they know like the back of their hand, which is weird because I don't really know the back of my hand, but they know it and they've got it down and they've figured it out. And so he uses this inheritance picture for a reason, very, very clearly. And Jesus, and he jumps right into the younger one, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. There might have been a collective gasp. Because in this story, basically what that means is the son was saying, Hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. So the factors at play in this story are not just illegal, but they're incredibly heartbreaking and rude and unheard of and awful and behavior that would be totally and completely uh, shot down and just in every way, it's so bad. But we miss a little bit in this very first part when we read this story about the relationship implications of asking for an early inheritance. It is a blow to a relationship between a father and a son. And because of how communities worked and because of how information transferred, there was no doubt that by the next day, the whole city was saying, hey, did you hear what his son said? Did you hear what he did? Did you hear that? He wishes that his dad was dead. Like it's a whole conversation that has blown up. And now not only is the son in this space of like, he's a total disaster, but the father is now under the watch of the community. How will he respond is a very important, important space. And our human reaction, when someone comes up to you that is your child or anything else that is close to you, and their statement is, I wish you were dead, we do not typically give them whatever they want, <clears throat> right? We typically go and say, okay, that's it, we're done. I'm blocking your number, blocking you on Facebook, like you don't get to come to Christmas, like whatever it looks like in that story it is incredibly challenging and kicking someone out, calling it good, saying you gotta move, like this isn't gonna work is expected in this situation. And yet, because the Pharisees are listening and Jesus knows what he's doing, he does something that no Pharisee would ever expect, which is to just give him the inheritance. Which allows us to see right off the bat that Jesus isn't doing what's humanly expected. And in this story, the father isn't doing what's humanly expected. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So the next move in this story says not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, is the illegal selling of an estate for cash wealth. Now the reason it says not long after that is because it takes a little bit of time when you get an inheritance in the New Testament to 
sort of get it to turn into cash. And here's why. In the historical sort of place of this story, this was a farming family in a small community where basically people talked and they knew each other and communication streams traveled and in a space where your farm, if you were a farmer, is your entire livelihood. Now, when we think of inheritance or like when we think of this story, we typically read it because he spent it as like dad handed him a bag of cash. Or like, here's the father, and here's your bucket of coins. Like, this is sort of how we, like, view this story a little bit. Like, well, here's your inheritance, and because you're going to spend it, it has to be money, so here's your money. And at the end of this whole story, and at the historical implications of all of this, the dad did not hand the son a bag of cash and say, okay, bye. His share of the inheritance was half of the family's farm. But that half of the family's farm was not cash. It wasn't like an equity loan that you pull out and you get the money. The son chose to sell half of the family's farm, which means he cut his family's ability to eat in half. He cut his family's livelihood, their wealth, their actual property was cut in half. It was sold and it was dispersed of, which means that half of the livestock that had been planned on for that year, half of the sheep that needed to be sheared, half of the cows that provided, what, like half of everything that that family owned that made them able to live in the city that they lived in to eat and breathe and drink amongst their friends and their family, he sold. So asking for an early inheritance is a very divisive thing. Not just like mentally and emotionally, but physically dividing your family. And keep in mind in this whole story, Jesus is defining who is family. And the Pharisees at this point are probably going, oh, this is a whole mess. This is a whole mess. So this son goes, hey, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, like, give me half of your farm, half your food, half your animals, half your everything. I will sell it all to someone else. And if you imagine that not long after that, let's say, even if that's just a couple days, like, how tense, how awkward, how heartbreaking were those couple of days? And then he sells it all, he gets the money, he goes to another country, and like we all know about the story, he squanders it on wealthy living. And that's not a super uncommon story. We all know someone or have children or uh, have people in our lives who have divided families, they've left homes, they've spent money in poor ways, doing poor things and making poor choices, and then some of us, those stories have ended up where we know people who are on the streets now. And so this story has some parallels in uh, the context that we know as well. But continuing, it said, verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, historically, this story has another blow. 
that son who's done all this horrible stuff, broken laws, broken relationships, broken all of these things, is acting illegally, is now with pigs. And the Pharisees would know that historically, if you are around pigs, then you are unclean. So the story just goes from worse to worser, like instantly. It's not a word I know. Uh, And he's sitting in this space where now not only is he outlawed, broken all these rules, horrible, horrible place to be if you're a Pharisee and you're seeing what's happening, he's with the pigs, which is like that final Jesus is like, and guess what? He's eating with pigs. And they're like, ah, no, like that's so bad. Like that's worse. Like it just gets worse and worse and worse. But here's the thing. You know those people who are always clueless that the reason their life is so hard is because it's just the consequences of their own actions, but they don't know that. And so they're always like, ah, why is my life so hard? And everybody else is like, ah, I mean, I mean, they always say, why do all these bad things happen to me? And everybody else kind of knows why all those bad things are happening. But they don't know. I imagine this son is a little bit in that space where he's sitting there with the pigs. And he's in the worst place to be. He's spent all his money. And he's probably going, why is this happening to me? Why is this a thing? But the very next verse tells us that he came to his senses. Now, I'm sure you cannot relate to anyone in your life, in your family, in your story, anywhere that needs a come to their senses moment. I'm sure you have a list of people in your life that may need that moment. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, if you've grown up in the church like me, or you uh, have heard this story before, and this is not your first run through on the prodigal son, We usually view verse 17 through 20 as this great repentance moment, this great conviction that happens. This whole story on how he came to this place where he was starving and he realized he needed God or his dad back or whatever that looked like. But if we read this through some historical lenses and we break down that statement, he came to his senses the Pharisees would know exactly what that meant and they would know it wasn't repentance. Now, we wouldn't know that because we don't read in original language and understand all of those spaces, but they would. And that phrase, when he came to his senses, which is typically thought of or understood as when he sought repentance, when he was convicted. But the actual translation of that phrase is just when he came to his senses, when he found himself. Like when he looked in himself. When he looked at himself. That phrase is just about what he thought he could do. 
when he came to his senses is just when he thought about what he could accomplish. No repentance involved, simply just a plan for a man to get back to a place where he wasn't eating with pigs. goes on, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to, the, the, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So what about this confession? This sounds a little more like repentance, right? Well, the Pharisees, who are intensely skilled at Old Testament language, would immediately recognize this language comparison that happens here between the son with what happens in Exodus when Pharaoh was trying to manipulate Moses into stopping the plagues. Exodus 10, verse 16. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. And there wasn't anybody in that situation in Exodus watching the interaction between Pharaoh and Moses that was saying, oh, this is a real apology. There was nobody, and we know that when we read that story, we know Pharaoh quickly got up and he went to Moses and he was like, hey, by the way, like, do something about this. But instead of saying, I don't like these, he's like, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God and I need you to restore this great space of reconciliation to stop what you're doing and um, not release any more plagues. Get rid of them. They would have known immediately in this story when the son's plan is to say, Father, I've sinned against you, that it was a manipulation tactic. The prodigal son was looking for how he was going to exactly get himself on his own back to what he needed to be in what he thought he should have in his life. He was looking at how he was going to work his way back into right standing with the Father, the community. He was figuring out how he could manage reactions. He was figuring out how he could manipulate the city into believing that he was now repentant and all of these things were going to be okay. And he was determining that through his great planning and masterminding of what was about to go down, that he could work himself, which he said, father's hired hands make more money. They have savings, which means I could work at my father's farm and I could make enough money to pay back the inheritance and then it would be okay. And Bob Dodson says this about the story. I love this quote. This part of the story ties back to the salvation message because the son is trying to keep the law by working his way back to salvation. Grace is unnecessary because he can manage it on his own. The prodigal son sees it only as a matter of lost money, just a broken law. However, the real sin is in the broken relationship with his father. So he has a plan. He's got it all figured out. He doesn't need grace. He doesn't even really need forgiveness because his repentance in and of itself is a manipulation tactic. 
And the application for you here in this moment where we stop might be that you are in a space or have been in a space where you've made a plan and you've figured it all out and you thought or think that you don't need the grace of God. But verse 22 is sort of where this whole story starts to turn around. And suddenly that son doesn't need the plan that he made. And the only reason he doesn't need the plan that he made is because of the grace of the Father. There's no other thing in this story that is releasing him of what he has done. It goes on, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now here we are in another historical implication space. The father's willingness to extend grace happens in doing something that's unheard of for the time. We read that the father was filled with compassion and he ran to him as a simple, easy-to-understand space. Because that's not, like, unheard of for us. We know what people look like when they run. Like, we, like it's not like, okay, that is included here. It was not lawful for Jewish men, patriarchs of the family, to run. And the reason for that is because their robe might split and you might see their legs. And that would be a big disgrace to the family. So again, we miss that moment when we go, oh, the father ran out to the kid. And you're like, yay, he ran out there. No, like the moment was like, I'm going to do something myself that is against the law that is highly frowned upon, potentially a disgrace to the entire family for the sake of restoration. The decisions for the father were costly. But their comparison to what Jesus has done in this extension of grace to each of us too. Costly decisions worth every moment of the grace that Jesus provides. Now think about why this story started in the first place. The Pharisees were so upset that Jesus had called sinners friends. He had ate with them like family. And what is happening in this story? The father is eating with a sinner. He's celebrating with a sinner. He is sharing a meal and making family out of sinners. And now the son, in the middle of his own mess, in the middle of his own disaster, he can either follow through with his plan that he had all figured out, 
to work himself back to restoration, to manipulate the reactions with insincere apologies, manage what's about to happen, or he can accept the undeserved celebration and grace of the Father. Now, another way this story is often read is in the context of the big party for the brother who is dead and is now alive, and a great celebration for the son. But here's a question. On a basis of what we know historically about shared meals and celebrations, communion being one of them, is it a celebration for the son, or is it a celebration in recognition of the cost the father was willing to pay? Was it a celebration in recognition of the sacrifices that the father was making all along? Because big moments in scripture where there are shared meals are often not in direct celebration of a person, but in a celebration of the sacrifice that Jesus made or was about to make. The story goes on, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat, so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now there's an exclamation point there, which means that that was probably not said at the same volume that I just read it. That exclamation point would like immediately tell us that there was some anger, some passion, some intensity behind that statement. And there's some more historical implications. So this celebration is on par in the community with a very fancy wedding. And there are so many cultural norms between fathers and children and patriarchs of the family and this whole idea like he can't run to his kid because he might show his legs. There are so many intense cultural implications that are happening here that when the son gets into a screaming match... With the father, when he screams at the father and has this whole situation, it is also totally unheard of, totally insane, completely not allowed. Never a thing. I mean, for any of us, it would be awkward if we went to a wedding and somebody was screaming at the dad. Like, it would be an awkward moment and we'd be like, oh, that was probably unexpected. Like, uh, like it would be tense, but not tense like it was here. Because here there are so many cultural norms that were understood as laws that were being broken. It's highly frowned upon. It's very rude. It still is today highly frowned upon and very rude to scream at a father during a wedding. But even more so then. And the next historical move would be for the older son to cut off ties with the family. If he himself is unwilling to accept what the father is doing. So at this point, now the older son has a choice. And in the historical implication space, again, there's a ceremony 
that happens that the Pharisees are well aware of. And that ceremony, I can't remember what it's called, and I would have totally butchered the pronunciation anyway, but basically it meant cut off ties. And there was a ceremony for cutting off ties. And that ceremony for cutting off ties was supposed to happen to the younger brother when he came back. And now, after what the older son has done, it is also supposed to happen. And the thing about grace, the thing that's very clear about grace in this particular story is that the older son was essentially throwing a major fit because of this idea that grace is not fair. The brother was just not having that idea. And there are some personality types that struggle more with the concept of fairness than others. You either are or you know someone that is in that space where you understand or they understand that fairness is important. And to some people, it counts as really, really, really big deal. And to some people, it's not as big of a deal. But there are some personality types where fairness is more important than others. And if you are someone who struggles with the concept of life isn't fair or fairness as a whole, then you should expect that grace is also a hard concept for you. And you should pay attention to where that shows up in your life. Because my guess is if you are a person who struggles with fairness, then you have... uh, on your own, sort of dismiss some of the grace that Jesus has offered you, and on your own, sort of dismiss some of the grace you should offer to someone else. Now, everyone fits in that boat somewhere. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And instead of choosing to sever the relationship with the older son, the father extends the same grace to him, even in the embarrassing, painful, costly response to the father. And this story doesn't tell us what the older son chooses. It never ends with what happens next. And I wonder on some level if part of that is because the Pharisees at the very beginning are like, oh, I'm the younger son. And then they're like, oh, I'm not the younger son. They're like, I'm the older son. And then they get to the older son. They're like, I don't want to be the older son either. Like, what's happening? Like, who am I in this story? Because I don't want to be in either space. And so maybe Jesus doesn't end it with the son's reaction because he's saying, hey, what are you going to choose? What are you going to do? Basically saying, here's what the Father does time and time and time and time again, extending grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Here's how he celebrates the reconciliation that happens. Here's who he eats with. Here's who he calls family. And what are you going to do? So the question this morning for us is maybe not who exactly in this story, 
do we resonate with, but what behaviors, what attitudes, what perceptions do we resonate with? Are we willing to extend the same grace to those who have sinned against us that Jesus does? Are we willing to run to Jesus as Jesus runs to us and accept the grace he's extended? Are we willing to put down our plan, our we've got it all figured out space, where we've managed emotions, we've managed reactions, we've figured out how we're going to do what we need to do next? Are we willing to put down our fight for fairness and engage with the fact that God extends grace to people that we don't think deserve it?